Explore Your Spirit with Kayla. Journey with Kayla as she speaks with researchers, artists, teachers and healers, delving into topics of ancient mysteries, metaphysical explorations and new discoveries from science and spiritual arenas. Explore Your Spirit with Kayla can be found online at exploreyourspirit.com. Visit the website for more podcasts, articles, metaphysical news, and upcoming events. Welcome to Explore Your Spirit. I'm your host, Kayla. We're here today with paranormal investigator Lorraine Warren. Welcome, Mrs. Warren, to the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you here today. And your history and expertise, uh, I think, is probably paramount or I'm not even sure who to compare you with, with all the work that you uh, and your husband, Ed, have done in this line of research. How many years has it been now? Well over 50. Well, well over 50. How did it start? What first intrigued you to? It it started, um, well, for for each of us, it was a bit different. My husband grew up in a home that was haunted, and um, it was his desire to better understand what took place in that home because it was never properly uh, properly uh, understood exactly what it was that caused it and, and the frightening phenomena uh, that had happened in that home from the time that Ed was five until 12. And so that was kind of a, a mission for him. You know, um, he needed to talk to other people. He needed to know, was there something about his family, um, or did this happen to other families, what happened to him as a boy that was so terrifying and frightening, where myself, I had never grew up in a home like that. I was never subjected to anything of that nature. I wasn't even tolerant of the fact that it could happen, and I would say to Ed, you know, when the dead are dead, honey, um, you know, they're either going into a purgatory state or they're going on to heaven. I said, but you shouldn't believe in that. And he would say back to me, that's because you didn't grow up in the home that I grew up in. Mm. He would say how fortunate you really were. You were very fortunate. You had the most ideal family the most ideal parents. You grew up in such wonderful type of atmosphere. and But he said, with me, it was altogether different. That was a very terrifying and frightening home that I could never go into alone. So I began to realize that it was something where he had to actually satisfy his curiosity regarding the fact that Yes, these things happen to others. And we are, at that point in our lives, we were making our living as artists. Our art was exhibited, our art was sold, and um, we made our living in that way. And it funded us and enabled us to research. And then something began happening to me that, first began to surface when I was only nine in a private Catholic girls' school. And I started by 
seeing light around people. That is the only way I can describe the aura, because that is how I described it as a child. And I noticed that certain people's lights would be brighter or more beautiful or wider than, than others. I felt all the little girls in this private school that I was in could see that. But then when I shared it with the nuns, I realized that it was a taboo subject, and I didn't, I didn't want anything to do. Why did that happen to me then? You know, I mean, I was always a religious person. I still am. And why would anything like that happen to me if it was like against the laws of God or something of that nature? Because that's what I was meant to think. And, um, but when I tried to explain it to my parents, they were so loving and caring. And, you know, I grew up in an Irish Catholic home. And when I, when I say I couldn't have grown up in, in better surroundings and with more loving parents, I'm, I'm sincere about that. And yet they didn't understand. They didn't frown upon it or anything, but they didn't understand. And so for that reason, I kept that very much to myself. I didn't talk about it. I could still see it. I could see it where the animals were concerned. I could see it where people were concerned. And it would always puzzle me. I wonder what it really meant. You know, there must be other people that see it too. But who are they? And then um, our family moved from the small town that we lived in to Bridgeport because my brother had um, been hit by a car and was hospitalized for nine months. And that brought my family uh, to a bigger city and where the hospital was. And so um, we, we lived there you know, until I met Ed. Now, I never really dated. Uh, it wasn't, um, you know, I was only, I was only, say, well, when we moved to Bridgeport, I was only probably about 14 years old. But uh, even when I became 16, it wasn't really important to me. Uh, there were other things. My education was important. My religion was important. The church activities and um, and my family life, they were they were the important things, and 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 dating was not one of them. And then a group of girls from church were going to the movies, and they were going to see a particular movie, and they asked me if I could come, and I went with them. My parents said yes, it would be fine. And so we went to this little movie, and um, my husband was an usher in that movie. And they told me, walking there, that they were going to introduce me to this boy. And I wasn't really interested in that, but I didn't want them to know it. You know, I didn't want to appear um, that I really didn't want to do that, but it just wasn't part of my lifestyle at that time. And so um, when I met Ed, 
I thought, what a very nice kind of a person he was. I used to think that I would really never meet a boy like my brother or my father. But the night I met Ed, he after the movie was over, uh, he knew these girls. He knew them all. He said, I'll, I'll walk along home with you. And um, he bought he bought us all a Coke at a little corner store that was there. And then um, we walked, and, and I can still see him, how he was walking backwards and, and talking to us. And, and then all of a sudden, one of the girls said, oh, Ed, we're almost to your house. And he went to run across the street to, you know, go into his home and... I didn't see that young kid. I didn't see that 140-pound athletic kid that he was at that point. And I wrote in my diary, I'll spend the rest of my life with you because what I could see is a, is a much, much older man as my husband looked just before he collapsed. Mm. So my psychic ability, I developed in a very natural way, very natural way. And um, during a certain period of time uh, that we were going to be out in um, Beverly Hills, I wanted the opportunity of meeting with um, Dr. Thelma Moss and Dr. Johnson, who were doing research in Curlian photography. And... um, that was right at the very kind of beginning of our university lecture work. And I contacted them. They wanted to work with me as a natural psychic, and they did. And in turn, um, I had the opportunity of working with them where Curlian photography is concerned. It was fascinating. It was fascinating to see scientific proof of something that I could see from the time I was a little girl and was almost like you feel vindicated. And that has helped me in my work in understanding people and understanding why the law of attraction where people are concerned regarding haunting phenomena whether it deals with the diabolical or whether it deals with the human spirit or even a poltergeist type of energy because it helps you to really know who the people are, not what they're telling you, but who they really are. Yes. One day I think we'll all be able to see those things about each other and it tells you everything right there as a person walks into the room, you know, their energy field and what they're like, absolutely. It's it's beautiful. But yet you don't you don't allow that um, you don't allow that yourself to use that uh, to um, be critical of people or right. saying, I don't really think I want anything to do with you or or be critical. I don't use it for that at all. I don't, I've never have, you know, I think, what could I do to help, you know, in in, in certain cases, because I'm not saying I can turn it on and turn it off at will, 
but there's times I can discipline myself. I don't go around just reading people's auras. Believe me, I don't. I don't do that at all. Yeah, I use it mainly in my work, and I think I am, to a certain extent, very disciplined in it, just as I am where my abilities are concerned. I mean, I have a very normal life aside from this. Yes. It's important to have that balance, don't you think? It's a very important. I have a wonderful family. It is, it is very difficult to have been married to a man as wonderful as my husband and having lost him. Now, you know, my partner, he was a lot more than my partner. You know, he was a loving husband. And we traveled all over the world for our work, work with people of all cultures, and um, people are all the same. It doesn't matter. It does, you know, material things are not important. They're not important at all, but spiritual things are extremely important. And if you can help people, you go, in, you go into a home. You go into that home to try to find out what it is that's going on. And what's the law of attraction there? You know, why did this happen to these certain people? And, and then to get them on the right track. For the benefit of our listeners who may not be familiar with all the work you do, let's talk about one of the most popular examples of the work that you've done in investigation. The Amityville Horror uh, House, or how that's described, would that be probably the biggest one that you worked on? No, no, no. We've worked on a lot of big cases, dear. I mean, uh, the possession and exorcism of a young boy, um, and there's there's cases of the West Pittston case, what the Amityville? Yes, I mean, what, let, let's look at Amityville. Just about every family that had anything to do with that home had some type of problem, not to the extent that George and Kathy had, not to that quite to that extent, but things like this reach us on our weakest, most vulnerable levels. That's what happens in most homes. And in this home uh, where Kathy and George moved in, Kathy, Kathy was a religious girl. She had three children and a family dog, and she married George, and George was an atheist when he moved into that house. Before he died, he was no longer an atheist. We were a handful of people that went into that home. We were the only ones that went into the house itself. We didn't talk to George Lutz, you know, years and years and years after and have him tell a story. We were there. We were there in that house. We spent time with these children. We know what they went through. We know the things that occurred in that house that caused them to leave that house. And then even when they fled the house, and Father Pecoraro, who we were sworn to secrecy, we could not mention his name by the archdiocese um, because they didn't want it known. And they moved over to Kathy's mother's house, and Father said that he would like us 
to come there. And he said, let's do it on the Feast of St. Joseph, and I'll break St. Joseph's bread for everyone, and we'll break bread with the family. So we did this in March. We had been there in February investigating, and now this was on March 19th, and we were going there. And um, so we were told, we were told right in the beginning, don't talk about the case or why the children are still up. So we weren't going to be talking about the case while the children were still up. And so then we got talking. Now, in that house, they were levitating in Kathy's mother's home. And mm-hmm. Father was the first one to tell us because Ed and I both commented about this huge rosary, this Italian rosaries from Italy with the big um, beads, the great big wooden beads, and they were hanging on the wall right over the bed. And Father said that, you know, he had given that to them because of the fact that um, they were levitating in that house. Now, they fled that beautiful home. The kids are lying on mattresses on the floor in, in this house, Kathy's mother's home. And there's, they took nothing. They took absolutely nothing. The only thing George and Kathy wanted Ed and I to do and was to go back in the house and get the personal papers of the, uh, the marriage, uh, their marriage certificate, the, the, the things from the children um, where the church was concerned, and also um, the deed to the property or something. I'm trying to think there was all kinds of things. There were all kinds of personal papers, and they told us where these things were. When we went throughout that house, everything was just like you left your home this evening, just like you left your house. There were dishes still in the sink. There were plants that were on, on, the, um, on the, the sink also on the drain board that were being watered. Um, Everything was very neat in all of the closets. The heirlooms that were from his grandfather, who um, he had inherited all of these from, as well as, as the grandfather's surveying business. And all of these things were, were all in this house. But I remember walking in that house for the first time, the very first time, and from a standpoint of our, our faith and all and the role it played in our work, that particular day that that call came in, and Marvin Scott was the one who contacted us and asked us, and um, he had said to us, I filmed you at a school in New Jersey that had a haunting going on in one of the old buildings. And I was very impressed with how you people conducted yourself. And I wondered if you would come into this house and, and tell us something about what happened. We knew nothing about the background, nothing. I asked if Amityville was, was in New Jersey. We knew nothing about it. 
And we had been away. I think we were out in Akron at that time when the murders took place, when George and, Cl- and Kathy fled, fled the house. We were, um, we were away down south, so we were pretty green about any background. He said that their viewers had a right to know what exactly was going on, why one family were all murdered and why another family had fled. So that day, before we left, I took one of my dogs in the car with me and um, went over to pick up the mail. In the mail was a brown manila envelope from a man by the name of Loftus from Long Island. We've never met him, never met the man. And there was literature in there, and there was a second-class relic of a priest by the name of Padre Pio, a priest who has since been canonized, a saint. He's a priest who suffered the wounds of stigmata for 50 years of his life. He physically fought the devil, had the gift of discernment, and by location. And so when we left that day, I took that second-class relic with me, not for not because I knew any background on Amityville, because I didn't know anything. And um, I asked Padre Pio to help me with discernment. And in one room of the house on the first floor, which is the wet bar room, I could see things that were very troubling to me. And I tried to analyze what I was seeing. Was it the bodies? of the DeFeo's wrapped in sheets that were on the floor. What was it that was on the floor? And I remember cupping that relic without any media people knowing anything that I was doing. I remember cupping it and asking him for his help in discernment. A photograph was taken by, by our photographer. Our photographer entered the house with us. He was a man who had done considerable amount of development for us, uh, slide work for us, remounted slides for us. He had a camera shop in Newtown, Connecticut. And um, he said, someday, Ed, I would love to go in on a case with you. That was the someday, and that was the place he went in to with us. And in that room, in that um, room, which is like, looks like the sunroom on the first floor, uh, there was a um, um, moose head on the wall. And in that moose head is the image of Padre Pio. Mm. And so we didn't know this. We didn't really know it. When we met with Father Pecoraro at Kathy's mom's house, because we didn't even have our proof sheets back yet at that point. And so Father Pecoraro stood to um, cut bread, cut this St. Joseph's bread that he made. And um, 
he looked directly at me and said, who do you think brought you out of that house? And I felt so intimidated. I felt, <laughs> I felt like I was back in school. And I said, God, I guess, Father. Or God, I, I, God, I believe, Father. I think that's what I said. And he said, Padre Pio, right? <laughs> I said, how do you know? He said, told me so. Mm. And so the very first date we did after that was out in Akron. And um, we were lecturing there, and Ed was going to use the slide. And he used the slide, and he got bad press. And a reporter reported that he showed a picture of a man that looked like a priest. So Ed said, "Hun, we got to pull it. we got to pull that out <clears throat> until we can document it, just like everything else. So he did. And I began to pray to that man and said, if that's really you in that photograph, then help me to understand you more. Help me to know you. You know, send me in some direction if it's really you. If so we made our way uh, across country, um, you know, with our flights from one school to another, and then we found ourselves on the West Coast. That's how we would do it when, when we would be of having one school right after another. And um, so it was a weekend. We were going to be off on a Saturday night, and these friends of ours in Beverly Hills wanted us to stay in their guest cottage. And so we did, and they had a nice little get-together with friends and like that for us. And the next day, two or three of these men were going to, wanted to take Ed to some place. I don't remember what it was, something to do, uh, I don't even remember, I don't even want to speculate why he wasn't going to be going to Mass with me. So this man that was there, who was an executive with ABC um, TV in Los Angeles, said, Lorraine, would you want to go to Mass with me in the morning? And I, so I said to Ed, I said, you know, that this man wants to take me to Mass in the morning. And so he said, that's a good idea, because I can just go to a later one. We'll be right back with more of Explore Your Spirit with Kayla. Would you like to know ahead of time what new shows are coming to Explore Your Spirit? If so, visit the website at exploreyourspirit.com and sign up for Soul Speak, our free newsletter and talk show guide. You'll receive a monthly newsletter with reviews of new shows, along with a guide of upcoming events, workshops, news, and other information. Sign up today at ExploreYourSpirit.com. We're back with more of Explore Your Spirit with Kayla. Anyway, we walked to church from there. We walked to the Church of the Good Shepherd, and we were coming out of church. Now, remember, I don't know the man. <laughs> I mean, I had just met him the night before with Ed, 
And he said to me, coming down the church steps, do you know Padre Pio? Did you know Padre Pio? And I said, no, I never met him, sir. I knew of him. And I said, why did you ask? Because he knew nothing about this, what, about the photograph or anything. And um, so anyway, um, he said, well, you're going to be in La Jolla tonight. I said, yes, we're going to be speaking there. He says, well, on the coast going down, there's a Cilician school for boys. And this priest, who served with Padre Pio in life, uh, is in residence at that school. He says he's from Italy. He doesn't really speak good English. I said, do you know him? He says, no, I just know of him. There's talk about him. And um, I said, I said, yes. I said, I'd love to meet him. I imagine my husband would, too. So we got back, and I told Ed. Ed then told them the story of, of the photograph. And um, as, as a result of that, we met with the priest. It was this priest that helped us to document that case. Yes, that's when we could show it again. He went upstairs to his cell, and when he went up to his cell, his name is Father Ralph Negre. That's the priest's name. He went up to his cell to get um, a book, all written in Italian. And he showed this picture to us. And it was taken um, a day after Padre Pio had been physically attacked by the devil. And it was remarkable because it looked, you know, it looked like, of course, a different pose, but it looked like the same exact figure of Padre Pio. Anyway, I said, Father, why would he appear to me? His words to me were only this, you must have asked him to. Mm. And so there is no doubt in my mind about Amityville. All these hearsayer people that come out with this skeptical business or that they know all about Amityville, the people that entered that home with us, the parapsychologists, ourselves, the others that we went in with, the president of the American Society for Psychic Research, Dr. Alex Tanis, all of these people that we knew, these are the only people who had anything to do with the investigation of the Amityville horror case. And, um, yes, it was a very outstanding case. It was an extremely outstanding case. And if, if you were to ask if it was the biggest one, it would be the biggest because of the exposure it got. The books, the movies. We did tour. We did tour in and out of the country for Dino De Laurentiis um, concerning the movie, not on the validity of the movie, but on the validity of the case. So we did that for 
for the Lutzes and for Dina De Laurentiis, the producer of the first movie. What was the end result with Amityville? Is is the house still standing? Do people live in it? Was it resolved? I don't resolved? know. I have, I have had no desire, none, no desire whatsoever to go back into that house. Mm. The fact that the Lutzes were affected to the extent that they were, that was the Lutzes. Remember that it reaches us on our weakest, most vulnerable levels. Remember that, and that every family is not going to be affected the same way. Yes. They're not. They're not. One family can move in, and all hell can break loose. Another family can move in, and maybe nothing would happen. So we know this, you know, to be a fact. Because it's the individuals through the law of attraction. That's what it is in these cases. You've worked on so many cases throughout the years, and you also have a lot of things from different experiences and places that you've been that that you have kind of saved in, would you call it a museum? It Um, is a museum, yes. Tell us about that. Well, the museum, there is numerous things from the Annabelle Dow that has caused death uh, to people. And remember, it's an inanimate object, so it would be a cursed object. Um, That is my pet rooster (laughs) that that wants to get in on this. uh, But anyway, um, as a result, there's um, photographs uh, that are show, they're in a frame. They're in a metal frame, and they're all burnt, and yet nothing would burn. The walls wouldn't be burnt. Uh, there are things that um, there's uh, from, from the case in Brookfield, Connecticut, of the young boy that came under diabolical possession, and this um, dinosaur, one of these th- kits like you put together, mm-hmm. the thing could actually animate and move across the room, and voices come from it. And that, that is in there. I, I can just, there, there's things from, from witchcraft cases. Uh, there's, uh, my God, I could just go on and on. I, I'd, have to, I'd have to go on and on and on for another half hour to tell you each one <laughs> of the things. People that have... Um, actually been what you'd call human vampires. And um, so, yes, there's, it's, it's, it's just full of all documented cases there. The Annabelle doll, tell us about that a little bit. That, that was two nurses that um, actually, um, one of them, of the two nurses, they, they shared an apartment in Hartford, and one of them uh, collected... Um, Raggedy Ann and Andy. And the mother gave this one girl, these were grown women. I mean, they were, one of them was engaged to be married, but they, they, were, they were both RNs and worked at Hartford Hospital. And um, she got her this um, life-size Raggedy Ann doll. And they began treating that doll as if it were a child, you know, not, not treating it like a doll, they'd take it to the breakfast table, and it was almost 
almost like a case of obsession with them. They put it in the car, and so one day the arms of the doll levitated onto the table, the breakfast table. So they went, they went to um, to work, and they're telling everybody in work at the hospital. And so a couple of them said, let's hold a seance. And that's what they did. They began holding seances. And from these seances, they were getting really out of control. They would come home. The doll would be in places that they had not left it. One day, the doll that has very, very um, flimsy legs was actually standing at the doorway when they opened it. And um, so the, the um, I can't get over the fact he is keep continuing to do that <laughs> because he hears my voice. Um, so anyway, um, the one thing was the boyfriend, the fiancé of the one girl that was getting married, he was over there on a Saturday morning, and um, he fell asleep uh, on the couch while the girls were both cleaning. And he woke up with a start. He was totally intolerant of what they were doing. He was very, very upset about this whole thing. And anyway, he um, woke up with a start, and he said, I cannot believe this. He said, that doll, he said, that doll strangled me like in my sleep, and they, they said, and he was, he was perspiring profusely, and he got up, and he picked up the doll, and when he picked it up, he threw it across the room, and claw marks appeared right across his chest, bringing blood right through the T-shirt. This was the man that was so skeptical. So they contacted the chaplain at the hospital, the chaplain contacted Ed and I, and we went to the house. And this couple and that, and that other nurse required counseling for months. And that, that doll is now in a glass, clay, glass case um, in the museum. Now, a priest came this one day. And he was going to take us for a ride in his brand-new car. He was so proud of this brand-new car. And he wanted to take us for a ride. And we got back, and he said, Ed, I'd like to see that doll that puts lashes on people. And so Ed said, yeah, you can come in, Father. So they went, him and Ed went in the museum, and he took the doll by the arm and threw it across the room. And he said, God is more powerful than the devil. And Ed said, yes, Father, but no man is priest or not. And on his way home to where he lived, the rectory, where he lived in a small town near here, his car went out of control and barely missed being hit head-on by a tractor-trailer. A detective that we were working with on the murder of a little child was here at the house talking with Ed and I, regarding this murder, 
and we were working. I was discerning for him, and we were working um, with him on that. And he said that he wanted to go down to the museum, not for any one thing, but he just wanted to go down there. And it took him down. So a call came in for Ed that was personal, and Ed didn't want to take it down there. And he came up here. He said, whatever you do, don't touch anything down here. And so um, it came up, and within a few minutes, he just came stumbling up the stairs. He couldn't talk. He was incoherent. And he Ed went downstairs. Everything was flying. Everything was all over the place mm. down there. He somehow challenged what was there. He left the police department, this detective. He was a detective. He left the police department and moved out to California. The last day that I got to see the man, I had gone down to the post office. He was coming in to close his post office box. He hugged me and said goodbye. We never, ever had anything more to do with him. Um, a group of students were here. This group of students had come uh, for a museum tour and for a seminar. And Ed was talking to all of them. And this one couple didn't come on the bus with the other students. They came on a motorcycle. And um, so the guy stood in the back and Ed told him to sit down. And he, he was kind of arrogant in his behavior. And he went over and he tapped on the glass case. And Ed said to him, that was a very foolish thing to do. And he said, if you can really put scratches on people, put some scratches on me. And he left, Ed told him, he says, says you know, it's best you just leave, okay? So the couple left. He was killed on the way home. Mm. And the girl that was with him on the back of the bike was hospitalized a long time and told Ed that the last thing he did before he hit that tree was he was laughing hysterically about that Raggedy Ann doll. Mm. There's so many things like that, and people don't realize the dangers. No, they don't, yeah. And... I think that's important that you, and you try so much to tell people about this and to teach them about that. And people don't know and they do Ouija boards or they do things like this mm-hmm. and don't understand what can, they really can bring forth. And no, they don't. That's the one thing we constantly, constantly talk about at, at universities is, is the um, use of Ouija boards and occult practices. Constantly doing that, too. I think one of, that's one of the things that I've always respected the most about your work is that you really try to express that and to help people and to educate them to understand that it's oh, not yeah. just something we just don't interesting. don't tell them ghost stories, dear. Right, exactly. You can't tell educated people ghost stories. You have to have documented proof. Yes. You have to have been there. You have to have experienced it. You have to have spent time with the families with the clergy and all, not just tell a story to, to the public. 
Yes. And that is what is going on today. And that's, I think people really need to understand how much of it is. If they ever experience something like this ever in their life, like I'm sure you've seen people do, then it's forever not a story or something of entertaining at all anymore. It's No, a, it's, it's not entertaining, dear. Yes. No, no, it's a warning for people to stay away from these occult practices and, you know, to respect these things, but mainly, mainly. And, and then the Ouija board, you never burn them. Let me say this before I close. Never burn a Ouija board. Never throw away a Ouija board. Bury the board. Bury mm-hmm. it. What is the reason behind that? If you're, going, if you're going to throw it away, anybody can pick it up. If you burn it, there's always a very bad after effects from it. So we always suggest, and then if they're of Christian faith, we always tell them to um, to make the sign of the cross with holy water on top of it. But to definitely, uh, definitely bury them. As we close here, if there was something that you could express to everyone, something parting that you would give them to think about or to consider in their life or to do, do you have any suggestions for people? The best advice I can give to people is not to open doors to this occult world. And nine times out of ten, they are not going to be affected. So people have a peaceful, loving home. Very, very, very seldom do you go in to an all-loving home where there's phenomena going on there. Very, very, very seldom. There's always turmoil. There's always fighting. There's always arguing. There's drugs. There's alcohol. Divorce is eminent. All of these things, dear, make us vulnerable to that world. Makes sense why those energy imprints as well stay so strong in those homes, whether it's with hauntings or whatever. It's the intensity of the emotions and everything that's happened. Exactly. That's what's giving fuel to it. It's, It's there. It's dormant. But now you're giving fuel to it, and that's what's activating it. Yes. Appreciate your time so much. Tell us real quick your website and where people can reach you if they'd like to find out more or have you speak for an engagement or learn more about your books and what you do. What's the best way to reach you? Our website is www.warrens.net. And then if you're looking for help, you go to help at warrens.net. You're looking for info, you go info at warrens.net. Easy enough. Mrs. Warren, we appreciate your time so much today. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us and all that you've done. Thank you. It was my pleasure, dear. Thank you ever so much. Explore Your Spirit is on the web. Visit us at exploreyourspirit.com.